Hi, this is Steve Smith and Rich Young from Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, and welcome to our podcast. Today we're talking about IOC Rule 50, which has been getting a lot of uh, media attention lately. Rich, do you want to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Rule 50 and what it involves? Sure. So the the seminal document in the Olympic movement is the Olympic Charter. And then when you read the Olympic Charter, they have bylaws under that, like bylaw to Rule 50. Uh, Rule 50 has been in the Olympic Charter since the 50s, and it deals, it's called... Advertising Demonstrations and Propaganda. And most of Rule 50 has to do with advertising. You know, whether they have a clean game or whether the athletes look like NASCAR. Uh, protecting IOC sponsors. All those kinds of things. But the last part of Rule 50 says no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas. And that is the basis of athletes being uh, disciplined all the way back to the 1960s and the raised fists of Smith and Carlos. In Mexico City. In, yeah, exactly. And then there have been lots since. The In response to cultural changes on protests and Black Lives Matter, the IOC Athletes Commission recommended a loosening of that rule. And we can talk to Alan in more details about this, but the primary difference is it now allows protests, peaceful protests and demonstrations at numerous sites during the Olympic Games that weren't there. Podium, for example, is still not a place where you can protest, but in other places you can take a knee, raise your fist, and do those kinds of things. Great. Well, why don't we bring in Alan, and we can uh, talk a little more with him about it. Uh, Alan, thanks again for joining us from Tokyo. Uh, Today we're talking about Rule 50. You know, we have been reading about protests at the Olympic Games for years and years. You've probably seen them at all 11 of your Olympic Games. IOC has cracked down pretty hard on those, I guess would be my impression. This year, in response to, maybe it's in response to the Black Lives Matter protests or George Floyd or the whole race issue that's occurred around the world in terms of protests, the IOC Athletes Commission recommended a change. The change is subject to the rules of individual international federations and individual national Olympic committees. What's your take on the history of Rule 50 and where we are now and where you think it's going to go? That's a simple question and a long answer. (laughs) Kind of a long question, too. (laughs) So the history of all this dates to the idea, which some people still think. So let's start with the idea that the IOC is uh, has separated sports and politics. So uh, let's start there. Uh, uh, this, this, there are two, two canards right now uh, that many people still think, uh, that the IOC separates sports and politics and that the IOC is still for amateurs. 
Okay, uh, the second one first. Uh, the IOC has not been for amateurs since the 1990s. Uh, the former IOC president, Juan Antonio Samranch, uh, made that clear. That's why we have the likes of uh, the dream team in basketball. A- everyone at the Olympics is a professional now, plain and simple. Everyone gets paid. Maybe they don't get paid much, but they get paid. Uh, so that's the, that's the second thing. The first thing is uh, <clears throat> sports and politics. So uh, going back to the likes of uh, uh, even de Coubertin, uh, the Baron, uh, uh, Baron Pierre de Coubertin and his idea that um, the founder of the modern Olympics – who, was, who, who had this aristocratic idea that uh, sports ought to be separate from politics uh, and tried to, uh, in his uh, very French and very aristocratic way, tried to separate the two. And then going to Avery Brundage, who I think most historians would say, the American who was the president of the IOC <clears throat> from 1952 to 1972, uh, who history has not been kind to, uh, and for good reason, um, uh, especially um, after the uh, killings uh, and the kidnappings and killings of the Israelis uh, in Munich, mm-hmm. it, it, it was abundantly clear that that um, uh, the Olympics and the Olympic Games are are part of society. And but still, um, the IOC has tried uh, tried for many years to navigate its way through. <clears throat> Um, uh, not being part of the overtly political world. So um, Samranch was president from 1980 through 2001. And um, sorry, this is a very long answer, but I think we need this sort of context. Um, he um, was a former, uh, he was Spanish and an ambassador to Moscow, understood well many of the very intricate uh, relationships that, uh, animated the Cold War universe, and um, uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, uh, also uh, tried to um, uh, steer the IOC through this this perilous world, uh, uh, but he he um, uh, brought together the uh, sports federations and the National Olympic committees in sort of a big tent sort of world. Um, and, um, it was, it was, um, uh, after the 1968 Olympics, um, that, uh, Rule 50 came to be. And everyone remembers the iconic picture of, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the podium in Mexico City, uh, and the, um, Black Power Salute, uh, and their courage in doing what they did. So, um, the IOC, uh, under, uh, Brundage reacted very poorly. The United States Olympic Committee reacted very poorly. Uh, they were sent home in 1972. Wayne Collette, another sprinter, was sent home. And, um, so, so this led, uh, uh, repeatedly, uh, time and again to this outdated, uh, notion that, um, sports and politics ought to be separate. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, Samar gave way to Jacques Rogue, uh, who was, uh, his idea was to, after the Salt Lake City scandal of uh, 1999, uh, uh, President Rogue was really there to just sort of calm the waters. Then came Thomas Bach, 
Um, Bach's entire mission has been to stabilize the movement, but also to try to bring it into the 21st century. And in a speech in um, Incheon, South Korea, in 2014, he uh, he said, "Okay, enough." He said, "The IOC lives in a modern world, and that means that the IOC must be uh, political. It's part of a political world. That doesn't mean that it needs to be itself." Uh, it said we, it has to do business with the political entities that, that run this world. And so this whole idea of separating sports and politics went out for good. Okay. So now fast forward to the, the events of last year and, uh, the murder of Mr. Floyd has, uh, completely, um, uh, changed everything, uh, as far as, uh, the athlete voice goes, uh, in, in, um, the United States. Uh, and uh, also um, amplify that voice in certain other Western countries, uh, Canada, uh, Britain, uh, and, and some other countries. Um, and so the IOC, sensing that, uh, or understanding, excuse me, that that um, that athletes wanted to have a greater say in in uh, what might be permissible speech at the games. <clears throat> Uh, decided to conduct a survey. Uh, so let me back up just a second. In 2019, uh, two American athletes uh, staged protests at the Pan Am Games. Gwen Berry, who's a hammer thrower and uh, also a fencer. Uh, so um, uh, the, USO, the USOPC by then, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, uh, uh, sanctioned them and then backtracked. And then last year also, uh, the USOPC honored uh, Smith and Carlos uh, finally and belatedly. So uh, the USOPC decided to um, uh, undertake a series of its own internal um, uh, guidelines about what was permissible and what was what was not, and, and it decided that it would not sanction any athlete who decided to protest within the United States within the United States uh, at uh, its uh, events. So the IOC conducted a worldwide survey and. Um, uh, it got thousands of responses, and um, most of those responses were, leave the podium alone. Leave the podium alone. Uh, and um, so um, um, that is more or less uh, where we are now. Um, Rule 50 came into being after the Smith and Carlos thing, and, and the IOC basically has said no speech – that, that revolves around politics or religious or other affairs is permissible at the games. And what they've done now is say, leave the podium alone, uh, but otherwise, uh, as you begin competition, you're allowed to make certain gestures or other commentary within certain bounds. And, and the reason they don't want to um, I'm sorry for going on for so long here. But the reason that the IOC doesn't want to have certain um, in, to inject political speech into the games is not just for um, uh, uh, what, what we in the West might think of as BLM reasons. But, but let's say uh, an athlete from Taiwan was to get on the podium and say, mainland China, you know, I don't like you. Or an athlete from Iran was to get on the podium and say, Israel, uh, I don't like you. Uh, or an athlete from Georgia was to go on and say, hey, Russia, uh, you know, no way. I mean, the list of grievances around the world is endless. And, and, and that's why this rule. So uh, with that as a very long background and context, that's where we are.
Okay. Um, there's, it's my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, that there is still a content restriction that you can't direct your criticism to a particular person. Is that right? That is correct. So what kind of guidance is the USOC giving to its athletes on what they can do and what they can't do? I've read <laughs> the uh, IOC's guide on Rule 50, but if I must say that if I was an activist athlete, I don't really see where the safe harbors are in that document in terms of what I could say. Yeah, I don't think there are safe harbors. And and I don't know what will happen if we have an activist athlete per se. I think it would be okay to wear a black glove, to raise your fist, to take a knee. I think those are all acceptable demonstrations before competition, not on the podium. Uh, you know, Alan, one of the things that I think the, the IOC is probably – very concerned about is where this could go and how this could affect its relations. You know, for example, let's fast forward about uh, seven months from now, we're going to have a games in Beijing and there's a number of grievances against Beijing and you you throw in the Asian culture and where honor is so important. Uh, do you see this affecting potentially the relations and the games in China? You know, if you get somebody who protests on behalf of the Uyghurs or, you know, whoever it may be, uh, do you see that causing problems for the IOC? Yes. I want to try and pick my words carefully here. I, I've written a column to this effect several months ago. If I were the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, I would say to my athletes, in Beijing, if you choose to demonstrate on the podium or even before competition in China, you must understand that we are, you are taking a various serious risk to your health, safety, and liberty. Um, you have to understand that the cultural norms in China are different than in the United States. And we cannot be, we, we cannot assure you that you will not be met with a very different kind of response than you might be met with in Tokyo, which is a Western liberal democracy. Uh, you might very well be met with a response from the security force or, uh, other, um, or the police or the military. We, we don't know, but we can't guarantee that that would not be the case. And if you are arrested for embarrassing the Chinese state, we cannot predict what might happen. Wow. So it is, <laughs> you could follow, you could, you could follow the IOC rule. You could follow your IF's rule. You could follow the USOC rule and still end up in a Chinese jail. I mean, as we all learn in law school, uh, you have a duty to warn, and that is eminently foreseeable, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, that, it seems to me that could have a very significant impact on the future of the Olympics. I mean, if, if that creates controversy 
Does it make it harder for the IOC to go back to China in the future? Does it make China less willing to host the Olympics in the future? And, you know, we know right now that uh, just because of the the money that they're willing to put behind an Olympics, Russia and China are two very important countries in the Olympic movement. Uh, those are all salient points. On the other hand, if you are a skeleton athlete, just to pick one, do you really want to spend time in a Chinese uh, facility? Right. You know, it's interesting, having been involved in a couple of game selection processes, you know, you get infinite questions about funding and how you're going to run anti-doping and uh, your environmental impact and your cost of facilities and all that. Um, I don't recall, and maybe that's because these were U.S. games, I don't recall any questions about uh, local law coming down on people that are doing things that are permitted by the IOC. That may be a question that should be on the next questionnaire before either Olympic Games or uh, World Championships get awarded to some countries. Well, I would think so. And, and I think may, maybe uh, things have changed or we've changed or uh, there's just been so much change. Do you remember at the Sydney Olympics when the American uh, men's four-by-one relay team was chastised so significantly because they were perceived by some people to be clowning around with the flag after after winning. They were, you know, uh, they, they were just being joyful. Yeah. Now can you and now can you imagine uh, if some athlete uh, gets uh, detained by the Chinese authorities? Uh, I, I don't. I I can't even begin to predict how that would play out. What, what I can predict is this, or what I do know is this: the, the president of the United States has made it abundantly clear that, uh, that we have a new geopolitical rival, uh, and the, the Chinese are using the Olympics uh, as as, our, as we are too as a demonstration of soft power. Uh, and um, if I were, um, maybe, maybe this is the Midwestern boy and me having grown up in rural southwestern Ohio, I, I was taught that when, you know, you were in somebody else's house, you were supposed to be a guest, or you were a guest and you were supposed to observe uh, certain niceties in their country. I, I, I totally understand uh, the tensions here. Uh, but... Um, uh, we uh, have a unique relationship uh, with the rest of the world as Americans. And um, I, I would think long and hard about um, certain protests because when we as Americans do it, it, um, it, it often does not play well uh, when we uh, tell the rest of the world how they ought to behave, um, you know, yeah. uh, and appear to take a high ground on moral superiority. Yeah. We, we, I mean, consider the last four years. Um, I'm not so sure that we have a lot of moral high ground right now. Ellen, I think that's great. Um, uh, we will 
be very interested to see uh, what happens with respect to protests during these Tokyo games. And we'll look forward to reading your thoughts in Three Wire Sports. Thanks. And for the games at NBCOlympics.com, I will add, gentlemen, that the protests, uh, such as they are, they've been peaceful and respectful, have already begun uh, at uh, the first soccer matches. Uh, knees were taken, which is totally appropriate and within the rules. I don't think anybody has any issue with that. Um, I think the issue is on the podium. Uh, uh, that, I think, ought to – my personal opinion is that is that, that ought to stay – sacred space as, uh, as I've written before. Well, and, and if you, if you give lots of opportunities for free speech, that argues in favor of leaving the podium as sacred space. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not just you because if it's you, it, there are two other people at least up there with you on the podium. And, and, you know, there are many, many reasons uh, to leave the podium alone. Good. Well, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your time and look forward to hearing more from you in Tokyo. Thank you, gentlemen. Really appreciated this conversation. Uh, thanks to everyone who is listening, and we invite you to join us on our next podcast.